This morning our text is going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's going to take us a minute to get there, as it usually does with me. I don't just like to jump into everything. I like to talk a little bit first. Um, but something that we're going to be talking about a little bit today, we're going to be looking at about three different things, but one of the main points is we're going to be talking about is God and His holiness. Not just how is God holy, what is it that makes Him holy, but what is our job in responding to Him and to His holiness. And what we're going to see this morning is that we are supposed to radically and intentionally pursue Him and pursue His holiness. We're going to see that this morning. We're going to see a few other points. Um, but again, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 13 through 21. Just a disclaimer, at some point I may say Paul instead of Peter. That will be an accident. It's not intentional. And if I say it, someone can just raise their hand and I'll probably try to correct it. But don't openly make fun of me. I'm very sensitive. Okay? So it's going to happen. In my notes, the whole first page of notes I had, I wrote Paul every time. It was an embarrassing thing. I even told Brittany about it. So when we look at this idea of holiness, it's something that's incredibly hard to understand. Outside of the person of God, I have no reference for what true holiness is. There's no um, example in life that I can look at and say, yeah, holiness, remember how this happened? Or, yeah, look at this example. Because holiness is only something that comes from God. It is only God. He is the only one that is truly in all forms holy. The Old Testament shows holiness in two different ways. It shows that God is separate, meaning that He is other and He is set apart particularly from us. We know that God is holy. He is set apart from us. He is sinless. He is completely perfect. We look at the person of Christ. And Pastor Ben's been going um, through the study of him for weeks and weeks and months. And we're looking at this example and we're seeing a person in Jesus Christ who is holy, who didn't have sin, who was blameless, who was the very Son of God, set apart. We also see that these things that are, that are um, regarded holy based on their connection to God. We, we look and we can see, keep the Sabbath holy. The Sabbath was meant to be holy because of its connection to God. The temple as a holy place is holy because of its connection to God. It's not just because it was a building that was well constructed. Its connection to God is what makes it holy. And we see that because God is holy and because He is holiness, that all these things that are connected to Him, that God's Holiness permeates everything that He touches. And that's meant to be the same for us. We are called to be holy, and we're going to look at that a little bit later. So when we talk about God's holiness, it's one way of looking at His otherness and His difference. And in this morning, it's going to be pretty easy and pretty simple to look at God and to see His holiness, to see how other He is from ourselves. We know that we have sinned. We know that we are not without fault, that we are not blameless. For most of us, even so far this morning, we have already proven that, not only to ourselves, but maybe to others, but especially to God, through our sin. We see that there's this difference, that God is so other when compared to us. And when we see that, when we fully realize that, and we make notice of that, it's supposed to stir something in us. We're supposed to notice it, and it's supposed to provoke us to something, to some sort of response. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, it says, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. 
incredible truth found in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that no one is holy like the Lord and no one like our rock. Just an incredible truth. And when we see, we recognize God's holiness, we see it and we're able to stand under His holiness, which is His primary attribute in His character. We see that and then we realize our place. We realize where we are. And it's not on the same level. We're not level with God. We are not parallel. It's not a horizontal thing of God is here and then I'm right next to Him and that's great. We're basically the same. So I get to set the rules. We look up and say, God, you are so holy and so other than me. And we start to realize what what it is that we see in Isaiah chapter 6. We feel unworthy when we're first truly confronted with that. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5 He's writing and he realizes that he's unworthy when he sees God's holiness. And he says, Then I said, Woe is me! I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He sees the King, he sees the Lord, and realizes, I am unworthy of this. We see Moses, when he was confronted and saw the Lord, what was his response? Was he just staring and saying, this is so incredible, that's basically me. No, his response was incredible. He knew that he was unworthy. He could hardly stand to see God in all of his holiness, and all of his righteousness, and all of his glory. We're so unworthy of this, but yet God allows us to see it. And so as believers, when we recognize God's holiness, we begin to pursue it. We're supposed to actively pursue it. Holiness isn't something that just happens by chance. Our pursuit of it isn't something that we do casually or that we do by accident. We don't just stumble upon a pile of holiness sitting behind the, in the backyard somewhere. I wish that were the case, but that doesn't happen. There's things that we are to do. There's ways that we're supposed to be searching him for Him. And we're only going to find it through God. Holiness is not going to be found in a person. It's not going to be found simply just reading from a book by a good author. It's not going to be found just within relationship for one another, but it's only going to be found when we pursue Him and pursue His holiness. So when we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter opens up the chapter and he immediately begins talking about salvation. Verses 3 through 5, he's talking about the believer's eternal inheritance. An inheritance that we're going to have in heaven forever. One that's incorruptible. It's perfect. It's enormous. These wonderful blessings. Verses 6-9, through he then moves from the inheritance to the joy that we have in salvation. It's a great start to a chapter. Talking about this this eternal inheritance we're going to have for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the joy that we can have in salvation through Christ. In verses 10 through 12, talking about the greatness of salvation. So he opens it up, giving all this description, talking about what salvation is. And this is where we then find ourselves in the text. Our text begins in verse 13 with Peter moving from statements about salvation to application. He moves from descriptive mode to imperatives. For those of you that like grammar and things like that, imperatives are commands, things that we're supposed to do. So this moves from, this is salvation, I hope you understand, to, well, now that you've accepted salvation, those of you who are found in Christ Jesus, here's what you are to do. And this is the part where um, whenever, whenever I'm told from Scripture what it is that I need to do, my ears perk up. 
And I'm often convicted as well. Because it's things that I have to do whether I like it or not. Because I'm not the one that makes the rules. God tells me to do it. I'm commanded to do these things. And we're supposed to respond with obedience. So we're moving from the statements about salvation into the application, which is where we find ourselves in the text. Move to verse 13. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Before we get into that, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. We thank you, um, as we do every day, for another opportunity to look into your word, to study it, to, to openly uh, proclaim your word with fellow believers, to be able to, to worship together this morning. We thank you so much for your grace. God, we thank you that you are holy, that we're unworthy of, of seeing your holiness, of even being able to, to be able to see it um, in the future as we, as we continue uh, to move towards, towards eternity in heaven with you. God, I just pray that you would allow us to be able to apply this to our lives this morning, to be able to see you more clearly this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 13, notice the first word. He says, wherefore. It's a very important word as, again, it links everything that he had just mentioned coming in, making the transition. Verse 13, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in verse 13, we're moving from all this talk about salvation to, okay, now, wherefore, Here's what you're supposed to do. First, gird up the loins of your mind. Soldiers would have to gird up um, their, I'm not going to call them dresses, but that's kind of what they were. Okay? When the Romans were going into battle, they'd have to gird up their loins. It's talking about preparing. We're preparing for a battle each and every day of spiritual warfare. We know that we're going into battle. For these soldiers to be going into battle with long, I don't really know other words outside of skirts or dresses, so... So maybe someone can help me out. But with these, this long dress, that they would gird it up so that it wouldn't hamper them in battle, so that it couldn't, couldn't be something that would hinder them. This idea of preparing your mind. Well, how do we prepare our mind? We have to know the Word of God. We have to study it. We have to be able to meditate upon the things of the Word. Second part, be sober. That means be under control. How often do we get out of control in our lives? How often... Do we lose control of what it is that's going on? Now, there's things that we can control and things that we can't. Can we control how often we study the Word of God? Can we control how often we go to Him in prayer? Can we control how often we obey? A lot of times we could say, man, I just couldn't help it. But much like a child who's disobedient, they know what is right or wrong. They chose to disobey. They chose to take the last cookie that you told them not to have because that was Dad's. And he wanted that cookie later. They made a choice that they were going to do what they knew that they shouldn't do. So prepare your mind, be under control, and hope to the end for grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Once again, we see this incredible idea of hope. Hoping for the grace to be brought. And it's talking about the second coming of Christ. Hope for that. Hope for the second coming. It's not something that we, when we talk about hope, we typically talk about things that, that we don't really have assurance of. I hope that someone just hands me $50,000 one day. I hope that happens. I hope a Minnesota sports team wins a championship in anything while I'm alive. But I have no assurance that this is going to happen. 
I'm confident that it won't ever actually happen. <laughs> but when we look at hope, it's things that, oh, that'd be great if that happened, but I don't really have any assurance that it will. It'd be great, but I'm not totally, I'm not banking on it. So when this idea of talking about placing your hope and hoping to the end for grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Christ Jesus, we can have assurance in this. In fact, we can be so assured that as Peter wrote this, when you look at the Greek, it's written in the present participle form. Why is it written in present tense? This is going to come in the future. That doesn't make sense. I told some of the men earlier, I'm terrible at grammar. It may have been a bad sentence there. But some of you are great at it. It's the same stuff I learned every year of my life, and I never cared to learn it. I just hated it. So I had to study this. Brittany would have known it right away, but I had to look into it a little more. Peter writes this as the present form, and under that Greek construction, it's indicating that there's complete assurance of a future event. So when he says, says it and writes it in the present form, he's writing it with complete and full assurance that this future event is going to happen. Complete confidence. Do you have full assurance? Do you have complete hope and confidence that Jesus will return, that there will be the second coming, that all of the things that are promised in the Bible and that we read in the book of Revelation and all throughout Scripture, the way that it's been from the beginning, do you have complete confidence and assurance that it's going to come to pass? Because God has promised so much in the Bible and every single time it's come true. Every time. And so when we see this, Peter's instructing believers to prepare their mind to be under control and to hope for the second coming. Place all of your hope, all of your belief, all of your confidence in Christ, in God and what He's done. That this whole plan from the very beginning is going to come. It's going to happen. And when you look to in the Greek, this idea of, of fixing your hope, it's, it's in a military fashion, this decisive action. So when you look at it, it's the idea of fixing your hope. It's not, okay, I'm just going to kind of hope a little bit today. But in the military, they don't play around. It's fix, fix, like, oh, decisive. Okay, that's where my hope is. And you do not waver in that. It's an incredible thing. It's incredibly intentional. And the close of verse 13, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's the exact um, same, same word usage in the same phrase that we find in Revelation chapter 1 to open the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, linking it to the future event. Verse 7 of Revelation chapter 1, this is what we get to hope for. And it's incredible when we're able to see this and we can have complete confidence in this. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. This beautiful picture, this beautiful, glorious picture of Christ returning. But Peter's not only telling us to view all of these things, um, just stand amazed at what it is that God is doing. Not because it's some spectacle, because it's something incredible to see but it's the realization of these eternal promises finally coming to pass. That the whole big picture of it, it's not simply a display of power, but all of God and all of His glory. Christ returning, and we're able to see the fulfillment of these promises. 
Move over to verse 14. Verses 14 through 16. Again, we're seeing how we're to respond to God. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. It's an incredible, incredible illustration in verse 14. As obedient children. Children, we ask them to obey without question, don't we? We start to hate it when kids get old enough and they start asking, well, why? I hate when my son asks me why. He's two and a half. He shouldn't be asking me why. <laughs> but that's my fault because I make him use reason at two years old. But we see that we're supposed to respond to God as obedient children, which again, this, this idea of just full trust, of God is our Father, I trust Him, I'll, I'll obey Him. I know I'm supposed to, I know it's what I'm supposed to do. But it also shows this incredible relationship of a father and a child. There's relationship there. See, so many other religions have this idea of we are, that we're nothing and there's no relationship between us and one of the many, many gods that they have. There's no relationship at all. Just do these things and that's it. No relationship. Aren't you thankful that, that God is a God of relationship? That He wants to be with us. He longs for us to worship Him. And so we see this relationship. We also know that we know that we're children because when we're believers, we're, we're adopted as sons. Adopted as sons. Willingly chosen to be sons. Co-heirs with Christ. There's relationship. It's not a foreign idea of who God is. We can intimately know God. We can know who He is. We can know what it is that He's done. We can know that He loves us. And so as we're, as we're living in this anticipation of the return of Christ, consider its significance. Consider the significance of His return. Consider how holy He is. And what does it say in verse 15 and 16? But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. In verse 16, be ye holy, for I am holy. We know that we're called to be holy because he is. Again, the relationship. Every kid wants to be like their father when they're young. For some reason, my son wants to be like me. He was here a couple weeks ago at church. He came, he was dressed up super nice. I think it was for Easter. And he said, I'm the pretend daddy today. I said, what are you going to do? He said, um, talk. <laughs> okay, he's off to a good start, right? That's what I do. I said, talk about what? He said, um, about God. He wants to be like his father. Whether he knows better or not, he wants to be like his father. It's incredible. And at the end of of verse 14 mentions the former lust in your ignorance. Because before we, before we were saved, before we were redeemed, we didn't know any better. But those of us who have, been, who have been called to redemption, who have been saved through Christ and have made Him Lord over our life, we know better. 
We know better. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that regeneration creates a new life with a desire and a power to live righteously. We know better. We know how to do these things. And we're actually enabled to do them. Flip over to Colossians chapter 3 um, just briefly. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. It says, If ye then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of God that created him. Incredible parallels from Colossians chapter 3 to what we're seeing in 1 Peter. Before God, these are things that we were partaking in. These were things that were part of our life, that we lived in at one time. But now that we are, we are found in Christ Jesus, our life is hid with Christ in God, put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. We know better now. We know, we know better. So when we see in verses 14, this idea of not fashioning ourselves according to the form of lesson our ignorance, we're then instructed how, how we are to do this. What is our model? What is it that we're supposed to look to? Verses 15 and 16, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. God is the standard for holiness. We would all know this and we would all accept this. When we look at um, biblical characters, as I mentioned when I went through um, the story of Joseph. Joseph was a great guy. He did some good things, and that's great. Jacob did some good things, and that's great. David did some good things, and that's great. We can learn from them, but they're not the standard. We're not called to be like David, called to be like Abraham, called to be like Paul. We're called to be like Christ, to be pursuing God and His holiness. And Peter Peter notices this, and he, he's very clear about it, and he refers back to the Old Testament. Because as we know, it's not Old Testament completely done away with. New Testament authors quote the Old Testament so frequently, and it, once again, it just shows the enormous wonder of God and that from the very beginning, it was always this way. He quotes back to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 43 through 45. It says, Ye shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creepeth, neither shall ye make yourselves unclean with them, that ye should be defiled thereby. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, 
for I am holy. He's referring back all the way to Leviticus, this quotation of be holy, for I am holy. God's people are called to be holy because God is holy. I understand that that seems like a very simple idea, but do we truly appreciate it and do we understand it in the way that we should? We're called to be holy for He is holy. That's our base for holiness, for our pursuit of holiness. Pursue it because God is. And how do we do that? Just as God is holy. The pattern, the example is all throughout the Bible from God, through the person of Jesus Christ, showing us how to live in accordance with the Spirit, submissive to the Father in all things. Living is the perfect example. God has always called His people to separate themselves from this, from immorality, from uncleanness. God has no part in immorality or things that are unclean. God cannot be a part of it. And it's hard, it's hard for me to understand this idea of how completely how separate God is and how He can absolutely have no part in something that is bad. Because if you're like me, you can kind of double dip, right? Sometimes you can, you can be in the things that are really good, and then the next day, bad. Living in the Spirit, next day, boom, back in the flesh for a short time. I have no understanding of what it is to fully and completely only be in one side of that. There's the battle. There's no battle with God. He's not dabbling in sin for a time. There's no sin for a season with God. There was no sin for a season with Christ while He came and lived in earth. Fully sinless all the time. God is completely holy, completely set apart all the time. Verse 17. It says, And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Do we conduct ourselves with, with awe or with fear of God? Fear not in the sense of scary monster in my closet. That's something I think that we can all at one point appreciate and understand, this idea of we are afraid of something. But do we truly have an awe, a respect, and a healthy fear of God? Because this passage doesn't just tell us this idea of the eternal blessings that are in heaven, this idea of salvation through Christ, but it contrasts it and gives us the, the realization here in verse 17, God is also our judge, a righteous judge. Do we call on Him with reverence? Do we truly appreciate His name? We look at the Lord's Prayer and how that starts off. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Pastor Ben months ago went through that and broke it down and for a while talked about just truly how reverent that is. That's not just, God, your name is great, and you move on. Do we truly appreciate how great God is, how great his name is, how worthy he is of our worship and our praise? Again, he's so holy and so set apart from us. We have no other reference for this aside from him. conducting ourselves with this fear and this honor. Looking at this idea of God as a judge, 
um, and the relationship, as I mentioned before, of a father. We see that God is judging a father. This would be me coming uh, before the court for some accused wrongdoing, and I look up to the bench and I see my dad, and he's the judge. Now you would assume, wow, that'd be awesome if it's my father. He's probably just going to give me whatever he can get away with at the time because um, he believes I should have been punished more as a child, and some of you can agree with that. But this idea of a father and a son, and you get there, you're before the judge, and you say, oh, wow, my dad is the judge. This is great. He and I know each other. We're almost best friends. We hang out. Like, he's going to let me go. This is easy. He knows me. We have a relationship. But God's impartial. Look back in verse 17. Who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work. God's impartial as a judge. It doesn't matter how long we claim to have attended church or how long we have claimed to do good things. If we are apart from Him and apart from His Son, the judgment will not be favorable. And so we can look at it and say, it's exciting that my Father is the judge. This is going to be easy, but God is an impartial judge. And at the end, it mentions sojourning. We're simply passing through here on this earth. This is not our home, nor is it our destination. I don't really desire to be here any longer than God wants me to. I know what I'm, where I'm headed. I know what I'm working towards. Why do I want to hang out here? Not just saying Glenwood, saying earth as a whole. Love Glenwood. Heaven's better, I'm sure. We're just passing through. So we're, we're in exile right now. This is not our home. Verses 18 and 19, this is where Peter begins to move and he begins to bring it back to the focus of everything where we always end up. Anytime um, that, we're, that we're worshiping, anytime we're opening the Word of God, it always has to come back to this. Verses 18 and 19. For as much as ye know that, that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your, from your fathers. So it says, you were not redeemed by silver or gold, things that could pass away, things that are perishable. That's not what you were redeemed by. Well, how were we redeemed? Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Isn't that incredible? Is it truly incredible to you that we were redeemed by the blood of Christ? A lamb without blemish, without spot. Perfect, sinless Son of God in Jesus. That's how we were redeemed. See, we, we pursue Him in His holiness and we, we honor Him and we fear Him and we, we can have assurance and hope in Him. Because we were redeemed not by something that's perishable, but by something infinitely more valuable. There's only one Jesus. Only one. He was never created. He always has been. There's a lot of gold, a lot of silver, a lot of things out there. There's a lot of lamb. There's a lot of goats. Only one Christ, only one Son of God. 
just want to read a quote from um, a Puritan named Thomas Watson. I love any of the um, old Puritan writings, especially um, some of the prayers. Just love a lot of um, what it is that they, just how they uplift the holiness of God and how they always look to redemption. They always have a great understanding of who God was. But Thomas Watson says, Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It cost more to redeem us than to make us. In the one, there was but the speaking of a word. In the other, the shedding of blood. The creation was but the work of God's fingers. Redemption is the work of his arm. It's an incredible picture. We stand in awe of everything that God has created. We look, we go out, and we can see the wonderful creation of God. We can see it, it's clear, and we stand in awe of it. But that pales in comparison to the work of redemption. This idea of Christ on the cross, perfect, sinless Son of God, nailed to the cross along with all of our sins. Do we stand in awe at the cross the way that we stand in awe of creation? Creation is not what saved us. Christ did. And he's coming again, and that's where we can put our hope. Last two verses, verses 20 and 21. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Verse 20 tells us God had planned from the beginning to send his son. It wasn't something that was reactionary. It wasn't God just looking and saying, this isn't what I expected. That I had no idea that people would be sinful, that people would reject me. It doesn't mean that God was caught by surprise, that God didn't know. God is sovereign over all things, at all times, for all time. That means from the beginning to now to the very end. He knows God had planned from the beginning to send his son. And I love verse 21 because it makes it once again clear, and I feel like probably every other chapter in the Bible tells us this, but salvation is through Christ alone, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's just an incredible verse. Incredible truth. And I like that phrasing of a peculiar people. Because believers are supposed to look and act and seem peculiar to the world. God is peculiar to the world. He's set apart from the world. He's, he's different. He's other. He's not the same. And we're called to do that as well. So as we pursue this idea of holiness, it's these things that we can only pursue as we look to Him, that we look to Him and we see that He is holy. And we're called to be holy just as He is holy. Called to be holy 
because he is. Set apart. Ask yourself, how do I look to the world? Do I look different or do I just look the same? Would people know that there's something peculiar or strange about me? Would anyone even notice? Because when we look at Jesus' ministry, he walked around and people instantly knew this guy is different. He's peculiar. He's strange. And it wasn't just because he looked weird. He looked just like everybody else. But the way that he conducted himself, the way that he lived his life, the way that he loved people, that was peculiar. Have you ever had anybody say, I've just never had anyone say something so nice to me before? Or you, someone says something really nice to you and you're shocked that that would even happen. A spirit of actual love is peculiar in this world. We know that. That's what, we're, that's what we are told, that people will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. Everything goes together. And this idea of looking at God as being holy, we are called to be holy just as he is holy. In verse 19, just in closing, that we, we leave with this reminder that we weren't redeemed through things that are corruptible, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The incredible truth and the incredible reminder that we've been redeemed through the blood of a perfect and sinless lamb in Jesus Christ. Just so incredible. And we can have hope in his second coming. Hope in the promise that God has given us these eternal blessings, eternal inheritance in heaven. Fix your hope on that this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your, your grace and your mercy. God, we thank you that, that we've been redeemed through the blood of your son, that it wasn't, that it was something that you saw as so infinitely valuable in your son that you sent him to die on the cross for us, nailing him alongside our sins to that cross so that we could have salvation through you. God, we know that salvation is only found through your Son. And as Peter is writing this, he's encouraging believers, those of us who have, who have been called by your name and who have received you as Lord and Savior, that, that we're pursuing holiness, that we hope in these things that are to come, that we can trust in your blessings, that we can have assurance in you that you are our rock. God, thank you for making it so clear what it is that's required for salvation, that we know that we have to, to trust in your Son and in Him alone, in His death and His burial and His resurrection. God, apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. There's no, there's no atonement for sins. God, I just pray that each and every one of us who, who call you Lord, that we, would, that we would radically just pursue you that we would seek you in prayer, that we would seek your word, that we would look to know you more and more, to continue to grow in that intimate relationship that you offer us. You make yourself so accessible to us all the time. You just want to be known. And God, it's our prayer that, that we would also be able to, to know you and to make you known. Father, I just pray that you would be with us today. pray that you would make yourself um, revealed this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.